I do want to encourage you or invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you are locating that or getting settled there, let me tell you, or let me begin by saying that I have a confession to make. Um, Don't want to pause too long there because you never know what someone is going to say after they say that. My confession is that uh, I have become a country music fan. Yeah. After years of making fun of it in my sermons, I have been converted. Uh, I love the twang and the drawl and the y'all, especially the y'all, right? I love the songs about small towns and first loves and trucks. Sometimes they combine all three. It's a beautiful thing. I've got some redneck tendencies. What can I say? Most of all, what I love about it is the storytelling. I love the ability to paint a picture with words and to tell a story. Now, this is a bit of a new phenomenon for me, but there have been some moments in the past where I've crossed paths with a country song or two. The number one country song back in 2004 was Live Like You Were Dying by Tim McGraw. And I remember that song because the lyrics made you think about life. The first verse of that song says, he said, I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me when a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays and talking about the options and talking about sweet time. I asked him when it sank in that this might really be the real end. How does it hit you? When you get that kind of news, man, what'd you do? And then comes the chorus. And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. That's the theme on which that song turns. What would it look like to live like you were dying? What would you do or what would you do differently if you knew that you only had a specified amount of time to live? It's it's actually a really good question. It's a question we all ought to spend time thinking about. What would we do? How would we live if we knew we were dying? But there is an even better question. And to get to that question, I want to take you to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is week number 5 of our mini-series out of 1 Corinthians 15, where we're focusing on the resurrection. So we're wrapping that up with a look at verses 50 to 58 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's what these verses tell us. I tell you this. Brothers, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, if you've been around at all during the last five weeks, maybe you're thinking the resurrection again? Alistair Begg says that preachers can sometimes feel like they're carrying coal to Newcastle. Now, if that expression is lost on you, uh, let me just explain. Newcastle is a city in northern England, one that was once entirely dependent on their coal mining production. It's coal mining industry. And it would be foolish to carry coal to Newcastle because it's already there in such abundance. Modern-day equivalent to this might be watering your lawn in the pouring rain. Why would you do that? Why would you feel the need to do that? Now, we've just come through Easter. We've just spent the last four weeks in this chapter focusing on the resurrection and the hope that it brings. Do we really need another week of this? And I would say that we do. We live in a world that so often feels bereft of hope and there is no better source for hope than the doctrine of the resurrection. So as we think about this passage, I want to kind of sort of reverse engineer this this morning. The chapter ends with a therefore in verse 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. This is how the Bible's longest chapter on the resurrection ends. It ends by telling us how we ought to live in light of the resurrection. So how should we live in the light of Jesus' resurrection? How should we live in the light of our future resurrection? Again, this is a better question than how should we live as if we were dying? Because the answer to that question is, you should go Rocky Mountain climbing. You should go skydiving. You should seek to experience all that you can before that opportunity is lost. The question that flows from this passage is, what does it mean to live like you know this life is not all there is? And how does that change the way we live? So I want to try to answer that by drawing your attention to four things we ought to live with in light of the resurrection. The first thing we ought to live with is an awareness of our condition, our current condition. Verse 50 states the matter bluntly. Listen again to it. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God." So what does that mean? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Is Paul adopting some kind of Greek dualism? I mean, this was a common way of thinking at the time. You know, the body or the physical was seen as bad and the spirit or the soul was seen as good. Is Paul saying that the resurrection is simply 
the liberation of our spirits from our bodies? Is, is that the great hope we have as Christians? Well, that would seem really odd, given that the burden of this chapter has been about the physical resurrection. And the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that heaven is not filled with disembodied spirits. Heaven is a physical place with trees and rivers and streets and food. So if that's not what it means to say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, what does it mean? Well, when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not denying that the kingdom of God is physical. He's denying that it is fleshly. And there are two aspects to this, and they're actually connected. The first thing this means is that the the, the kingdom of God is not made up of the kind of physicality that our world is. Now, we know this from the second half of the verse. Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, the kind of physicality we experience now is prone to decline and decay. It is perishable. Perishable things have a shelf life. They have an expiration date. Our physical bodies, as they are currently construed, have a shelf life. They have an expiration date. And I think this is hard for us in our day because we try to fight it every single day. We try to attain some sort of immortality in our natural state. And we try to do this in lots of different ways. I mean, we certainly try to do it physically. We all try to do this. Now, there are lots of good things that come about by focusing on physical health. I, I try to be in the, in the gym three or four times a week. I try to stay active outside of that. I try to eat at least somewhat healthily. And there is a place for all of that, but the focus on the physical body is a religion for some people. The hope for some people standing in front of the the mirror, repping out their bicep curls, is that this will lead to some sort of immortality. And our culture is obsessed with this. Recent visit to Yahoo's homepage had had links to these articles. So-and-so's beach photos reveal why she's still a goddess at age 60. Mr. So-and-so demonstrates you can still be jacked at 65. Now, I didn't click on the link, so I I can't say I I read it, but I'm sure that's true. Commit yourself to exercise, to healthy eating. I'm sure you can stay in great physical shape well into your twilight years. But that doesn't even come close to achieving immortality. At some point, your heart will stop beating. Your blood will stop flowing. Your body will start decaying. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, we try to achieve immortality in other ways as well. Some people try to achieve immortality through their accomplishments or through some sort of legacy that they might leave. They want their name to live on in some sort of symbolic immortality. Now, maybe we should just ask, I mean, how successful are we at that? So so let me ask you a question. How many of you know the first names of your great, great grandparents how many of you know that 
right? I, I, a couple of you do. If I went another generation, you might, there might be no one who would say that. So even in two or three generations, we forget. Our memory will be totally gone. You might as well write your name on the sand if that's your method of achieving immortality. Every human achievement or every human effort to achieve immortality will fail. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But there's more to it than just that. There's another reason flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is not the first time in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul says that someone will not be able or someone will not inherit the kingdom of God. Back in chapter 6, he said this. He said, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So chapter 15 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And back in chapter 6, it says, the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. My suggestion is that those two things mean the same thing. Flesh and blood is sort of longhand for referring to our fleshly or our earthly or our sinful nature. And the thing that will ultimately keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God, the thing that will ultimately keep us separated from God is not just the fact that we die. It's our sin. It's that in our natural state, we are not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the news is not all bad in that. We should never forget what Paul says right after. He says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me take you back to chapter 6 again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. See, the good news of the gospel is that none of us is worthy to inherit God's kingdom in our natural state. He does a work in our hearts that makes us fit for the kingdom. And that transformation is partial in a sense. It's partial in the sense that we're now qualified to inherit the kingdom of God, but there's still a future aspect to this. And that takes us to the second thing we ought to live with, which is an anticipation of our future transformation. So we entitled this series, Resurrection, the death of death and the hope of life. This point is about the hope part. What is our hope? Now, it's good to know that God doesn't leave us where he found us. He doesn't leave us in the same unrighteous state where he found us. Those things are no longer our identity. Such were some of you. But what we are now is also not the end of the story. 
And this is what we see in verses 51 to 53. Listen again to what it says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, there's a lot in those verses, but I want you to notice four words that stand out. Those words are, Behold... Mystery, changed, and moment. The language here is meant to be arresting. Behold! That word literally means look. But you and I know that there are different ways of looking. Right? Sometimes we look at something in a kind of a casual way. I mean, we sort of put our eyes up and and take a quick glance. There's so many visual stimuli in our culture that it takes a lot to actually get our attention. But Paul wants to get our attention with this word. Behold, look, pay attention to this. You can't double screen while you're doing this. So Paul says, behold, think about this. And what Paul wants us to do here is to stop in our tracks and really think about it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now that word mystery refers to something that is too profound for human discovery. This is something that has to be revealed to us. So there's lots of speculation about what happens to people's bodies after they die. There's everyone, every culture has some thoughts or some ideas of what might happen on the other side of death. In his book entitled Heaven, Randy Elkhorn points out that the sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believed that in the afterlife their spirits would hunt the spirits of the buffalo. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. So as I said, there's lots of speculation as to what might happen after we die. And in addition to all the speculation about heaven or some kind of heaven, there are all sorts of other ideas. There's extinction. Maybe we just cease to exist at all. There's nothing. There's reincarnation. Maybe we're just in this endless circle of life. We just kind of go through it again and again until we get it right. So who's to say which idea is right? Well, the Bible's answer to that is that it has been revealed to us. That mystery has been made known to us. We have one who has gone before us. So we can have confidence to know. So when we see the word mystery, we shouldn't think speculation, but revealed, made known. The third word is changed. So what is the mystery? It is that at the resurrection, we shall all be 
changed. Paul actually says that twice, once in verse 51, and then he says it again in verse 53. Now, there is a transformation that takes place when we become Christians. But there's another transformation that will take place once we are raised from the dead. Again, there are lots of questions we don't know the answers to about our resurrected bodies, what they will be like. Will we all be beautiful? Will our five senses be enhanced in some way? Will there be thick and thin, short and tall bodies in heaven? How old will our bodies be in heaven? We don't know the answer to those questions. Those things have not been revealed to us. But the big part of the mystery has been revealed. The emphasis in the New Testament is on the fact that our resurrected bodies will be without any trace of the curse that affects us now. We won't experience pain. We won't experience the longing for a different body. Our bodies will not deteriorate or break down. Most notably, our bodies will not die. The perishable will put on the imperishable. The fourth word is moment. Verse 52 says this. It says, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So in reality, those words, moment, twinkling of an eye, trumpet, are all communicating the same thing. That the transformation we will experience when we are raised from the dead will be immediate. It will be sudden, instantaneous. Now we understand something about transformation now. I mean, we get a sense of what it looks like. But usually when we think about transformation, we think about it as a process. We understand this on the physical level. I mean, transformation takes time. If you want to transform your body, it will take time. You change your diet, you start a new exercise regime, and somewhere down the road, you start to see changes. Transformation is taking place, and it works like this in other areas of life as well. Life transformation, dropping old habits, establishing new habits, all of that takes time. It's a process of transformation. But the transformation we will experience at the resurrection will be immediate. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. And this is not the only time we're told about this transformation that we should look forward to. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in the city of Philippi. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our lowly bodies will be transformed to be just like his glorious body. The Apostle John said it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And then John says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So why is it worth focusing or reflecting on our future transformation? What we will one day be like in heaven. 
Well, John tells us it has a purifying effect on us now. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. Now, this is a, a weak analogy, but, but, it's, but it is kind of like when you want to transform your physical body now. If you want your beach body ready for summer, you start making changes now. You purify your diet. And the same is true as we think about this day when we will, we will be made like Jesus. We start making changes now that purify us. So there's an anticipation we have of our future transformation. Third thing we ought to live with is an absence of the fear of death. Now, this one is worthy of a message in and of itself. Everyone thinks about death at some point. Some time ago, The Atlantic published an article entitled, What Do Atheists Think of Death? One humanist respondent said this. He said, for me... The fear of death is far and away the most immediate and challenging aspect of my atheism. Death affects me in profound ways. Bart Ehrman, the agnostic New Testament scholar, once conceded this. He said, the fear of death gripped me for years. And there are still moments when I wake up at night in a cold sweat. See, that, that, That's an honest admission. Of the fear of death. Stanford psychiatrist Irvin D. Yalom said this. He said, despite the staunchest and most venerable defenses, we can never completely subdue death anxiety. It is always there lurking in some hidden ravine of the mind. Now, most of us don't like to think about death. I mean, especially our own. One recent book exploring the idea of death argued that we usually respond to the thought of death in one of three ways. Denial, distraction, or depression. I think maybe it's more accurate to say that we respond in all three ways. Maybe just at different times. I mean, usually first it's kind of denial, right? We just push it out of our mind. We pretend it's not going to happen to us or it won't happen to us anytime soon. Then we opt for distraction. We engage in all sorts of pursuits that will divert our attention from the fact that we are going to die. We distract ourselves with entertainment and all sorts of other things so we don't have to think about it. And if denial and distraction don't work, then we end up with depression. The thought of death, especially our own, is depressing. The Huffington Post ran an article in 2017 with the title, Atheism Has a Suicide Problem. A couple of lines from that article stand out. The prospect of our death and the death of those we love is the major reason for depression. Another line said, depression is a serious problem in the atheist community and far too often that depression has led to suicide. This is something many of my fellow atheists don't like to admit, but it is true. Now, maybe that seems counterintuitive to you. If you're afraid of death, why would you take your own life? In 2020, a group of Harvard researchers released a study documenting that attendance at religious services dramatically reduces deaths from suicide, drugs, and alcohol. According to the study... 
attending services at least once a week, cut these so-called deaths by despair by 33% among men and a whopping 68% among women compared with those who never attended services. I like the way Clay Jones put it. He's an apologist. He said this, people often talk about an epidemic of suicide, but the real epidemic is the increasing rejection of a robust belief in the afterlife. That's what is miring more and more people in hopelessness. Look, if you have hope only for now, it's no wonder it leads to despair and depression if this is all it is. And this is where the good news of the gospel breaks in. It needs to be heard. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, that verse tells us that the fear of death is a type of mental slavery but that Jesus frees us from that bondage. He frees us from the fear of death. Death is a certainty. The fear of death is a reality for many people. So what do I mean by saying that the resurrection of Jesus or living in light of the resurrection leads to an absence of the fear of death? Well, it doesn't mean that we don't have any fears or apprehensions about the process of dying. I'm pretty sure none of us wants to die by torture or even by a debilitating disease. I think we'd all rather go down in a blaze of glory or just quietly pass away in our sleep. The absence of the fear of death is not about the process of dying, but about what awaits us on the other side. We have no fear about that. Notice again what the passage says in verses 54 to 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has taken away the sting of death. What does that look like? What does it mean to live in the light of that? I remember hearing Dr. Tony Evans tell a story about two young brothers. The two brothers were enjoying themselves outside on a beautiful sunny day. All of a sudden, a bee flew into their midst, and the younger brother got completely freaked out. He started screaming and crying out of fear because he was allergic to bee stings. His older brother tried to calm him down, get rid of the bee, but then the bee turned and stung him right in the face. He winced with pain, held his swollen face, but the bee was still buzzing around and his younger brother was still freaking out, screaming and crying. Finally, the older brother regained his composure and he looked at his younger brother and said, the bees only got one stinger and I took it. That's precisely what the resurrection does to the sting of death. Now, the sting of death is far worse than a bee sting. 
But Jesus has taken the sting, the stinger on our behalf. And because of that, we don't need to be afraid. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Final thing we ought to live with is a commitment to abiding and abounding. So I'm giving you two A words in this final point. Let me just start with abiding. In light of all that has been said about the resurrection, Paul exhorts us with this last verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul tells us to be steadfast, to be immovable. In some way, the closing exhortation takes us back to the beginning of this chapter, right? If you remember back in in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. See, the gospel is something firm we can stand on. The burden of this chapter has been to help us understand that we can have confidence firstly in the resurrection of Jesus and because we have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, we also have confidence in our own future resurrection. We have the kind of confidence that means we're immovable, we're steadfast. We can't be shaken. And since that is the case, we don't become a doubting Debbie or a cynical Simon as Sean reminded us last week. When we anchor ourselves in the truths of the gospel, the result is we're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Regardless of what is going on around us, we abide. We remain in the same place. We become steadfast and immovable. Second word is abounding. Paul says that we are to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. I think we all know what it means to labor in vain or what it looks like to labor in vain. If you have kids living at home, you know exactly what this means, right? You've probably seen that meme that says cleaning with kids in the house is like brushing your teeth while eating Oreos. I mean, the moment you kind of get one thing done, you know, two other things have been completely undone. That can feel like labor is, your labor is in vain. It gets undone before you've even finished. And the work of ministry can feel like that at times too. All the good that happened on one day seemingly gets undone the next day. Now, if anyone knew that, if anyone understood that from firsthand experience, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, just think about the, entire, the entirety of this letter we call 1 Corinthians. Paul planted this church in Corinth. He was now writing to the church years after having planted it. And after having been away some time, and we began our study in 1 Corinthians all the way back in 2018 with a message I entitled, A Beautiful Mess. And I said in that message that there were no less than five things that made this church messy. The church in Corinth was marked by division. It was marked by immaturity. It was marked by sexual immorality. It was marked by misdirected tolerance. And when it came to their worship gatherings, it was marked by confusion and chaos. Was Paul's labor on behalf of this church in vain? Well, he doesn't seem to think so. And why not? 
See, our labor is not in vain because there's an eternal dimension to it. So while you can't achieve immortality for yourself by trying to leave a legacy, you can invest your life in eternal things that make an eternal difference. It was in the context of money and possessions that Jesus said it, but I think these words apply equally to the idea of our service and work, our labor in the Lord. Here's what Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So right now, you are either laboring for that which does not last, and in that case, your labor is entirely in vain. You'll lose all of it at the end. Or you are laboring for that which will last and which will endure into eternity, and therefore your labor is not in vain. So may God help us to know the difference. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great truths about the resurrection. Lord, we know that so often we live in the midst of forgetfulness. We forget the truth of this, and we need to be reminded of these same things again and again. And God, I pray that we would be resurrection people. I pray that we would live our lives in light of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection. And as a result of that... We would labor on your behalf. We would work for that which does not perish. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.